Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, we will be discussing Prevent. Prevent is the name given to the UK government's community safeguarding program, which is part of Contest, the government's counterterrorism strategy. On today's podcast, I'm joined by two Prevent practitioners, Sean Arbuthnot and William Bulday. But before we begin, just a very quick advert for budding writers out there. Are you a writer or producer working on a military drama like The Last Post or Our Girl? Or are you making an espionage series to rival spooks? Well, Rossa McPhillips MBE is here to help. He is a former soldier in British military intelligence and he is offering a one-day course to writers, directors and producers on the facts about the armed forces, its culture, traditions and how they operate overseas in conflict zones from his first-hand perspective. The course will open up a door to the closed world of the intelligence services and course participants will get an opportunity to see what the role of an intelligence officer is really like as they take part in a realistic conflict simulation exercise where they must make quick decisions based on disparate intelligence data to prevent a hypothetical terrorist attack. For more information about this course, please email rossa at rossa.mcphillips at googlemail.com. Rossa is spelled R-O-S-S-A dot mcphillips which is m-c-p-h-i-l-l-i-p-s the venue is typically the royal holloway university of london at 11 bedford square london wc1b3r dates are to be confirmed but the course usually operates between 10 a.m and 6 p.m and the price is 85 pounds or 75 pounds for concessions drop ross an email and he'll let you know about course dates Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Sean and William, welcome to The Dry Cleaner cast. Hi, thanks for having us. Well, thanks for coming down. Thank you. Now, um, before we begin, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? So I suppose we'll start with, we'll start with Will. Okay, sure. So, um, uh, Will Valde, I've been working in Prevent uh, exactly 10 years this week. So I've hit my 10th anniversary uh, working in counterterrorism. Um, prior to that, a uh, psychology student at university, and prior to that, a whole other life, <laughs> which I won't bore you with. <laughs> well, I'm sure some people will be interested. But <laughs> uh, I, was, I was working in uh, identifying organised crime gangs and, and trying to uh, uh, undermine their attempts to steal people's identity. Uh, that does sound cool. Well, glad you oh, it was great fun. <laughs> uh, not quite as exciting as Prevent, but it was good fun. Okay, cool, cool, cool. And um, Sean, uh, tell us a bit about yourself. Well, my background's mainly in policing. I was a police officer for 12 years. I started my career back home in Northern Ireland, but for family reasons, transferred to the Midlands and fulfilled a variety of different roles within the police and ended up in a prevent team, which I thoroughly enjoyed. In fact, I enjoyed it so much that I ended up leaving the police in order to work full-time in prevent. Um, So, yeah, that's... That's essentially it. My background academically wise was in um, 
conflict resolution. I've got a master's in conflict resolution, which kind of kickstarted my whole interest in this arena in the first place. So. Excellent, excellent. Cool. Well, then, um, we're here to talk about prevent today. Um, and before we sort of get into what prevent is, um, you know, we'd like to talk a bit about terrorism and extremism. So I suppose the the first thing we probably should do, um, and I'll let you guys sort of figure out who wants to say what bit, but um, um, it's just talk about the difference between what terrorism is and what extremism is. Yeah, sure. So the, the rent strategy gives you the definition of extremism, um, which you're going to test me now to remember it word for word. Um, it, it's seen as the vocal or active opposition to kind of our shared values of democracy, the rule of law, individual liberty, mutual respect and tolerance of different faiths and beliefs. Included in that definition is uh, the call for deaths of members of our armed forces. Yeah. So, you know, being being clear that that's not saying you can't disagree with foreign policy. It's saying calling for British citizens to be murdered is a pretty extreme position. And essentially what that definition is trying to encapsulate is not just the values that we as a society want to support and share and, and live, live alongside, um, but those that want to actively undermine those values and either dispense with them um, or, or put some kind of schism in those values, uh, we would see as putting themselves on the fringes of society. Mm. So it's sort of, we're basically trying to keep an eye out for when people cross that line, aren't we? Essentially, yeah. I mean, we have to be clear. It is, it is about those that want to undermine those values. Um, we get quizzed an awful lot when people say, well, um, I have a particular belief, for example, around homosexuality. Am I now an extremist? And there's a very big difference between what you hold dear and believe and true to yourself uh, and actually actively going out there and trying to vilify and demonise uh, and incite violence against people who are gay. Um, so it's not about you know, policing thought, which is one of the kind of buzz, buzz phrases that the critics try to use against prevent. Um, it's about saying you're entitled to, to whatever beliefs you, you hold dear, but don't, because of those beliefs, start demonising, vilifying or trying to attack others because of those beliefs. Yeah, yeah. And in a nutshell, how, what could we say, you know, is terrorism exactly? So, I mean, some people define it as political violence. The definition of terrorism is somewhat older. That goes way back. The one we, we have as a working definition is for the Terrorism Act itself, which I think is from 2000, um, which is kind of violence or the, the threat of violence um, in order to either change a, a government policy, change the policy of a multinational corporation, to instill fear in an entire community of people. Um, that would fall under the definition of terrorism. So it could be something as, as, as grand and global as, as Al-Qaeda, um, or it could be any single issue cause we might see in the UK that potentially would want to use terrorism or the threat of violence uh, to change a government policy on a particular issue. Yeah. One of the interesting things about our legal definition of terrorism is just that it's so broad as well because it encompasses violent action in the name of a political ideology, religious racial even so it actually covers a whole spectrum of things as well what is sort of right and wrong about our definition of terrorism is it is it still working today or is there is there a way we could rethink it or well it's a tricky one and like i say it we've got a broad definition of terrorism and time and again these arguments rear their head as to what constitutes a terrorist act and what doesn't with the perception being to be blunt if it's a muslim who commits an atrocity then certain sections of the media or the public would immediately regard that as a terrorist matter. And, and the other side of the coin, if, uh, if an atrocity is committed by somebody from 
a white background, for example, then it's seen as a hate crime potentially. And I've got a lot of sympathy for those for those views, but there are sort of complex, nuanced debates to be had in that particular arena in order to get to the root of those issues. But that's certainly something that I've seen with prevent referrals actually who have come our way. People who have said, well, hang on a second. It's one rule for Muslim communities in this country and it's another rule for everybody else because that person over there isn't a convicted terrorist simply because they're white. And, you know, I do have sympathy with that to a certain degree, but I would rather talk about it and explore that as opposed to use it as something that divides us. Yeah. I mean, it's a fair point that Sean makes. And you have to take all of these cases case by case and on their own merits. So someone like Darren Osborne, for example, who had a history of immersing himself in far-right ideology, uh, trying to be in contact with Tommy Robinson, was on the mailing list for, for Tommy Robinson and his entourage. Uh, you know, when he drove into into a group of worshippers uh, and committed an act of murder last year, within minutes that was declared an act of terrorism uh, and the government convened one of their COBRA meetings, the, the Cabinet Office meetings, uh, to assess the situation and see what needs to be done about it. Um, but then there was a case fairly recently um, in the East Midlands of, of somebody who was uh, a known violent offender. He was on license for, I think, ABH or GBH. He'd been driving around at 8 o'clock in the morning drunk because he'd been drinking all through the night, saying, I want to know what it feels like to run somebody over. Uh, and eventually he did, um, tragically. Now, thankfully, the, the victim did not uh, lose her life, but she has been um, injured um, for life um, because of what he did. Um, but he was not a far-right extremist. He had no connection with far-right ideology. Uh, he wasn't immersed in it. He wasn't attached to it. He wasn't infatuated with it. Um, he was a violent man who did a horrific, violent act. Um, but we have to look at them case by case. And actually, if you look at their backgrounds, look at the individuals, look at who they are, look at where they come from, look at what they're interested in, there is a clear difference between the two. Um, and, and similarly, you know, if, it's a, if it was a young Muslim who happened to have just, you know, for whatever reason, snapped and decided to, to hurt somebody, I think it's incumbent upon the media to understand what has happened before they start using words like terrorism uh, because it's unhelpful uh, and actually it's qu- it's quite stigmatizing for Muslim communities um, if if indeed it turns out not to be an act of terrorism yeah yeah well what are the you know last year we had three major terrorist attacks which obviously Westminster Manchester and London Bridge what are the types of terrorist threats that we're facing in the UK today so the overriding threat is still from those individuals or groups who are inspired by either ISIS or Daesh as people call them um, or Al-Qaeda still uh, we, we must not forget about Al-Qaeda who are trying to reposition themselves as, as the logical and viable less violent alternative to ISIS. So that's still the overriding threat. Obviously, the foreign fighter phenomenon is, is a global problem. Um, tens of thousands of people left to join ISIS. It wasn't just a small matter. Uh, and those people are now returning to their country of origin. So that's still the overriding threat. But we have seen over the years a reciprocal rise in the radical right, far right extremism, neo-Nazi extremism as well. Uh, so I think, you know, We've not seen a neo-Nazi organization prescribed or banned um, since the end of World War II. And then in the last 12 months or so, we've had three banned. So it does seem to suggest that that is an increasing problem. But those of us that work in Prevent have long maintained that this whole concept of escalation or reciprocal radicalization is a real and tangible issue that we need to acknowledge and try and do something about. Uh, and in 2011, the Refresh Prevent Strategy did make special mention of that and specifically talk about far-right extremism in there as well. So those tend to be the two dominant threats that we're facing. 
Yeah, I mean, the UK's got a, a threat grading that's independently set by the Joint Terrorism Analysis Centre, and currently our threat level is at severe, meaning that an attack from international terrorism is deemed to be highly likely, and it's been at severe since about August 2014, albeit it rose to critical on two separate occasions last year. And I think the scale of the threat is certainly evolving. You know, Andrew Parker, the head of MI5, said last year about how, you know, terrorist plots can be complex and sophisticated, but likewise, they can also be very crude and unsophisticated. Um, the scale and pace of terrorism seems to be evolving quite rapidly. And although last year we had a total of five terrorist attacks that ended up slipping through the net, if you like, I would include uh, the Finsbury Park Mosque attack and the Parsons Green attack as well, in in terms of the list that you just gave. But Mark Riley, the outgoing head of counterterrorism in the Met, recently revealed that there were a further 14 terrorist plots that had been foiled by security services in 2017. And I suppose this is very much aligned with what Will just said in terms of where the predominant threats are coming from. Ten of those foiled plots related to Islamist-inspired extremism, four related to the far right. So that is an increasing threat, but something that ourselves and Prevent have been looking at for quite some time. It feels like um, the far right and Islamist extremists are sort of a little bit feeding off each other's sort of propaganda, if that's the best way to put it. Um, and certainly when looking at Europe and the US, um, a lot of, you know, there does seem to be a big rise in the far right. And um, certainly in the US, obviously, they have access to weapons. Um, I think in Europe, to some extent, they probably do. I don't know what the situation is in the UK, because we've got much tighter laws and things. Do you think we will be seeing, I don't know, a, a mass shooting or a bombing that will have a link to the far right in the near future? Do you think it's possible? I hope not. Yeah, you know, We've got um, some very serious cases in court at the moment linked to the prescribed group National Action, um, some of whom were serving servicemen, uh, militarily trained, potentially access to firearms. I mean, when I worked you know, for the police some years ago, and when I first started in Prevent, uh, and there was a after the Mumbai attacks, there was a huge kind of response in the UK. What would we do if the same sort of rampaging gun attack was happening in the UK? And actually, whilst an awful lot of planning from the police side was, was, was put in place around how to respond, um, I was somewhat reassured by my manager at the time who said that access to firearms in the UK is relatively easy. Access to ammunition, however, is not. And that was a critical difference. Um, in terms of kind of Europe and, and America and the rise of the far right, we are actually very fortunate in the UK that the radical right movements are very fractured, very disorganised. They don't get along with each other very well easily. Um, and we should be thankful that for that. My concern would be if they do start to galvanise and become organised, and there's, there's some concerns that they are receiving funding from, from elsewhere around the world in order to help them do that, then we would see, uh, we would see a bigger problem emerge. Um, but at the moment, the dominant threat, obviously, is, is Islamist extremism. Um, but you're right, they, the far-right feed off Islamist extremism, the Islamists feed off the far-right narrative. And between them, they both say very similar things. They say you cannot be British and Muslim, um, you cannot live side by side. Islam and, and, and kind of Western democracies cannot live side by side. So actually, they're, they're, they're both saying the same mantra, um, which is why we often refer to them as two sides of the same coin. Um, and I think we should, we and I guess the media should do more to highlight the fact that they are actually very similar in what they're saying, although their the methodology and their recruitment pools, if you like, are, are very different. I always think that whenever there's a significant Islamist-related attack that 
you know, a lot of our minority communities, particularly our Muslim communities, suffer twice as a result because they grieve and suffer with everybody else at the scale and horror of the initial attack. But then subsequent to that, you would often see a, a rise in hate crime, particularly Islamophobic hate crime. You may see reciprocal attacks from the far right, the way in which the two ideologies feed off each other. And in that respect, they suffer twice as much almost as, as everybody else. Will's absolutely right when he says they're two sides of the same coin. You know, they they use the same recruitment techniques, they prey on the same sorts of vulnerabilities, they oftentimes use the same language. So although the two extremes can be seen as polar opposites, they're actually much closer than a lot of people give them credit for. But I'm reassured actually by uh, how we deal with the general threat of terrorism here in the UK, not just because automatic weapons are so difficult to come by, but I think not enough credit is often given to how good our intelligence services are in the first instance, how good we are at thwarting attacks at the earliest possible stage. Um, and although you can't stop every single attack, I don't think, you know, no matter how many resources you ply into them, um, I think overall we're not doing too badly. We sort of covered this, but are the threats are the threats declining or are they getting worse, do you think? I mean, in terms of sheer numbers, I think 43 people were killed in terrorist attacks last year. That includes the attackers themselves. And there were over 200 injuries, so that would suggest in terms of sheer numbers that the threat has risen. But I think in general terms, like I mentioned earlier, I think that the threat is just becoming more complex and complicated and difficult to keep track of because of the huge numbers of methods that are available at terrorist disposal, whether it's from a large organized cell network right down to a frustrated lone actor who seeks to commit some kind of unsophisticated spur-of-the-moment type attack. Uh, and it's, I can only imagine how difficult it is to try and keep keep track of everything that's happening at, at, at a particular time. I think at any one time in the UK, there'd be about five to 600 live terrorist investigations taking place. So it's fair to say that the security services do have a lot on their plates at the moment. I, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat more cynical than Sean. I think it's getting worse. And I think it's going to get worse. I think what we saw last summer um, was, was a shift in terrorist methodology and attack planning, not not a simple spike over the summer. Um, and I think um, the response from the far right is going to be to galvanise and to become louder. Um, I mean, we are seeing an increase in cases linked to the far right. Now, what we cannot at the moment ascertain, which we're trying to, is is the existing radical right threat getting bigger or uh is what we already have here at the moment just getting louder and bolder uh, because of what they see out there. And at the moment, we, we, we genuinely can't ascertain that. And then there's an awful lot of academics out there doing some, some really good work trying to understand what's happening out there, what kind of subcultures are being created around the radical right. Um, but I think maybe it's the cynicism of a decade working in counterterrorism. Uh, but I, I do fear that things are, are going to get worse for us. Yeah, and just before we as I was setting up my microphones, we were sort of briefly chatting about there are other groups out there as well. Like obviously in the in Toronto you had the vehicle based attack which was connected to something called the incel movement or involuntary celibate movement. Um and also there's been environmental terrorism and various other things. So there are sort of other groups out there beyond sort of the far right and Islamist extremists as well, aren't there? Yeah, I mean my, my pessimism extends, you know, beyond what we saw last summer. I I feel 
rightly or wrongly, that society itself is becoming more fractured and polarised. Um, whatever you make of Brexit, you know, it, it, the vote cleaved the country clean down the middle with people on opposing sides. In my own household, it was cleaved down the middle um, for Remain and, and, and Leave. And I think that polarisation extends to our political system. So we have more, more polarised political parties now. So for many years, they've been all kind of very centrist. We, we've seen a division there as well. And I just think that natural polarisation in society, it lends itself to extremism. And that's not to say that political parties are extremists. What I'm trying to say is pe- people are, are edging towards the taking sides now and moving away from that centre ground. Um, and that worries me. And if activism fails to achieve its aims, positive activism, protest, demonstration, my concern is that that can spill over into violence. If, if, if the political processes don't seem to be working, if protest isn't working, but you desperately want to bring about change, what recourse are you left with? Um, and that's my great concern. I, I do think a, a, a fractured society is making the problem worse. Yeah, I share that concern. I think, yeah, it's a big problem. It's a big problem. Well, um, <laughs> on that cheery Sleep well, folks. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, Prevent. Let's chat about Prevent. So what is Prevent and how did it come about? Well, Prevent is essentially part of the UK's overarching counterterrorism strategy known as Contest. It's divided into four key strands. They're known as Protect, Prepare, Pursue and Prevent. Each one plays its own role in trying to keep us all safe. And as the name suggests, Prevent is all about trying to stop people from becoming terrorists in the first instance. The way in which it does that is that it tries to identify people who are vulnerable to extremism and radicalization. And it puts in place wraparound care and support with those individuals to try and steer them away from a path that could lead towards violence. So essentially, you could say it's the softer side of, of counterterrorism. To me, having worked in it since 2013, I would say it's very much a safeguarding duty, a safeguarding practice. Certainly when I was in the police, I never felt less like a police officer. When I worked in Prevent, I think I had the worst arrest record of anybody else in the force because we tried not to criminalise people. We tried to keep them out of the criminal justice system. So Prevent works with a lot of partner agencies in order to try and do that. I mean, it, it, the, the way to look at it is is safeguarding around any other social harm. Yeah, uh, It's an intervention, essentially. or one, one part of the Prevent strategy is intervention. I'd quite like to maybe unpick at some point the, the entirety of what the prevent sort of apparatus is, because it isn't just referring people who are vulnerable. Um, but that's the bit that gets the most coverage, I guess. Um, but we do these interventions for people getting involved in gangs or getting involved in guns or getting involved in drugs. This is tried and tested. It's not new. We haven't reinvented the wheel. It's just another form of intervention for people who are on another um, journey in life that, that potentially leads them to a, a path of crime. Uh, and, and as I say in my training sessions, if you are confronted with someone who is on that journey, and sees violence as the only legitimate solution to the grievances they hold, there are two things you can do, something or nothing. It doesn't feel right to do nothing, because if that person then commits a crime, if they join that gang, if they get involved in drugs, if they get involved in the knife culture, gun culture, get involved in extremism, and they commit a crime, that young person, or whoever it may be, is now a criminal. And we could have avoided that. But if they've committed a crime, we then have victims of that crime. We could have avoided that too. So it's a far more positive and pro-social approach to see someone who is uh, needs an arm around them, needs some help, and offers some kind of intervention, some kind of support to steer them away. Now, the choice that we've taken within Prevent 
and in counterterrorism is to offer voluntary support through something we call the Channel Safeguarding Program, um, which is remarkably successful. I think about 80% of those that engage with the process come out of it with, with any kind of issues around extremism, either reduced or, or completely diminished. Um, so that's essentially what Prevent is trying to do. I think one of the things people miss uh, represent about the Prevent strategy, there's a, there's a concept that it is somehow top down, that there are you know, people in suits in Whitehall, um, all very white and middle class, determining what should happen elsewhere around the country. Well, Sean and I are local Prevent coordinators. We write the local strategy, we write the local plan, we engage with our local communities, we do all of that based on our local risk assessment. The government is the mechanism for allowing us the funding and the resources to do that work locally. But we determine what happens locally. And actually, central government does not have a say in our local plan. Um, so it, it's delivered locally by local people. But even in the very, very early days of Prevent, if you go right back to 2005, within just a few weeks of the London bombings uh, on July 7th, um, the Preventing Extremism Together initiative or consultation plan was launched. Um, and that essentially travelled the country, engaging specifically with Muslim communities, because the original prevent strategy was purely focused on Al-Qaeda. Um, and they built, through consultation, a prevent strategy um, using the, the skills, the expertise, the knowledge and the aspirations of our Muslim communities. And that's what created the prevent strategy document that then came out in 2006. So this idea that it's top-down is complete nonsense. It's been built by and in consultation with our communities. Even before it became a legal duty in 2015, there was a, I think, a six or a nine week long consultation before it went before Parliament. And there were over 2000 responses to that consultation as well. So it definitely takes into the account of the views of others in terms of how it came into being and how it's developed and evolved since. Brilliant. Well, what, what, so you both are part of Prevent. You were saying you've been involved for 10 years. Yeah. Is that right, Will? Yeah. Um, and Sean, I can't, sorry, you did say how many, and I forgot. Yeah, about five or so. So what, what both drew you to becoming a part of Prevent? Cause you were, you're both sort of from a police sort of background and, um, and obviously this is quite different in some respects. So what, what drew you to Prevent? For me, it was, I mean, like I said, my background, when I was at university, I studied conflict resolution. I was big into politics and international affairs and all of those sorts of things. And uh, I started my police career back at home. I really, really enjoyed that. When I transferred um, to the mainland, I found that I enjoyed it for sure. Um, but it was only when I ended up working in Prevent that I really felt at home again because I felt like I was involved in something that was really current, that was really important. And... You know, without sounding too um, corny about it, I, I never felt like I made more of a difference in policing than when I worked in Prevent because I've seen it make really positive differences in people's lives. Um, whereas when I was in a CID office managing a huge workload, you saw the same people time and time again in the custody suite and you're constantly banging your head a brick wall, banging your head against a brick wall thinking, am I really making any progress here? And the change I've seen in people and the, the positivity that we've gained through Prevent has been just phenomenal, really, to be perfectly honest. So, yeah, I get a real, a real thrill out of working in this area. So for, for me, I mean, I, although I work for the police, I was not a police officer. I was just a civilian member of staff. I look like a copper. I get that. Um, I can't get away from that. I, I choose to cut my hair very short because I'm lazy first thing in the morning. Um, but for me, I mean, my, my background was, was in kind of understanding organised crime 
gangs and, and how they exploit and manipulate and, and trying to think, essentially think what would what would they do next uh, and being reasonably good at that. Uh, so then I kind of studied psychology later in life because I was fascinated in um, the decisions people make to get to where they are in life. So if someone was to commit a particular crime or to do something particular or to follow a particular movement or to get involved in conspiracy theories, I'm less interested in what they're involved in. I'm more interested in why did they make that decision? What drew them to do that? What psychological aspects particularly drew them to that point? Um, and in a very unromantic way, I saw an advert in a newspaper uh, to work in prevent for the police. And I thought, well, that looks right up my street. Uh, I'll give it a go. Uh, 108 applicants and here I am. Fantastic, fantastic. So, um, with Prevent, how does someone get referred to it? And I don't mean referred as an employment, but I mean as in, you know, somebody gets referred because they've become a point of concern. So, um, anyone can make a referral. We get referral from family members, from friends. Uh, a lot come from the education center, uh, education sector, uh, which is true of all kind of areas of safeguarding, uh, police, local authority. It's simply a case, if you're a member of the public, um, of picking up the phone, dial either your local police force, 101, uh, and ask for the prevent team, um, or phone your local authority safeguarding hotline uh, and say that you have a concern. And it's important to note, a phone call to a prevent team or a local authority needn't result directly in a prevent referral. If you're just after a bit of advice or a professional conversation, then that can easily be done as well. Um, And it's just like any other safeguarding process beyond that. And who is prevent? For. At the top end of Prevent, it's, it's, it's about protecting vulnerable people. It's about looking after those people who are particularly susceptible to extremism, trying to put in place that care, and it's bespoke, tailored care to make their life just that little bit better. And so by making them safer, we're subsequently making communities safer. But I guess when we think about it more broadly, you know, Prevent's involved in a lot of community work, a lot of outreach, a lot of projects and workshops that are based upon what local threats and risks are. So in that respect, it's about communities as well and building resilience to radicalization amongst our communities by, you know, promoting tolerance and respect and values and all of those sorts of things. But yeah, there's, there's something for everyone. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, without sounding you know, too, too glib or crass, uh, prevent is for everybody. And, yeah. and, and, and you know, what Sean says is right. You know, it isn't just a referral mechanism for people we're worried about. Um, there's an entire kind of uh, strata that deals with um, encouraging positive um, positive social interactions, positive social narratives. So if all forms, of, or if, if the two dominant forms of extremism are saying you can't be British and Muslim, actually we need voices out there saying, well, I'm British, I'm Muslim, where's the contradiction? Uh, so you've got counter-narratives, positive social narratives. Uh, it's really critical, particularly young people, to get them involved in civic and political participation, um, give them shared goals, shared endeavours, uh, breaking down barriers within communities, between communities, all of that. Um, can be facilitated and is facilitated by Prevent within the UK. Uh, there's then a whole other level, which is, you know, with limited resources, limited money, if in my particular area I'm told that this ward or this particular um, um, area of the city has a higher risk, that's where I need to apportion my resources, which is where outreach comes in, which is like traditional youth work, out on the street, talking to young people, working with young people, uh, they might be street-based interventions. Again, all of these have, you know, we've been using them for decades in other forms of, of, of social work and youth work. Um, and then at the very tip, I guess you've got what we're most famous for, which is the interventions themselves, 
the referral mechanisms, the channel program, which is where we bring experts or mentors uh, to deliver whatever results that might be, whether it's around anger management, conflict resolution, uh, traditional social care, one-to-one mentoring, whatever the resolution may be with the, in consultation and with, with the blessing of the person that, that we think needs support. So all of that is prevent and all of that is for everyone. Which is why when, when people bash out a, a glib hashtag of oh, end prevent, my question to them is, which bit? Because actually, when you look at that structure of prevent and you look at the work goes on, there are few people that would disagree that that is good work. Um, so uh, it's very easy to sit on your iPhone or sit on your laptop and, and bash out hashtags and, and, and hyperbole. Uh, but actually, when you look at what prevent is, what it entails, and what it's trying to achieve, uh, when people say end prevent, my question is, which bit? And you know, when you break it down, it doesn't actually sound much like counterterrorism. It's pretty straightforward stuff. There's nothing really controversial about it at all, mm. to be honest. It's about tackling social harms and protecting vulnerable people. Yeah, yeah. Well, so how do you go about tackling extreme ideologies? So somebody has been referred. Um, you know, how how does how do you sort of um, form a picture, and how do you then sort of tackle whatever? type of extremism that's the issue. If you're talking about people who have been referred to prevent Mm. and they embark upon the channel process, then the way in which we tackle the extremism is by looking at that person as an individual and looking at what their particular vulnerabilities and issues are. Now, in the first instance, we would require their consent to work with us to even get the ball rolling. Um, But you'd be surprised that the majority of people actually do end up consenting to, to channel support. And... The intervention is, like I said, tailored to, the, to their particular requirements. So whether they need help with education, help finding a job, assistance with housing, those are all the sorts of forms of support that, that we could bring. But we can also try to be a bit more um, creative when it comes to how we support people. And one of the key mechanisms of channel support comes through the mentoring process, whereby we have access to a range of vetted, accredited intervention providers who are able to work with vulnerable individuals on a confidential one-to-one basis and the knowledge and the experience and the the credibility I guess that they can bring to the table is, is worth its weight in gold you know these people would have much more credibility than I would ever have had as a as a police officer they come from a range of backgrounds from um, some may be scholars some may come from a, a psychology background a social work some of them are former extremists themselves um, and they know you know the, the reality of conflict the the lies that recruiters tell young people the passages of scripture that get manipulated they've been there they've done it so that can have a really powerful impact but when it comes to support you know, nothing's off the table if we can think of something that might have a positive effect then we'll do it. I always talk about a particular case I dealt with in the Midlands where we had a young lad who had a whole host of vulnerabilities, but amongst them, he was immersed in a far-right ideology to the point where he was convinced that white people were a master race. He used to say that we were 100% pure um, and that a race war was on the horizon. And amongst all of that, he, he had a, a huge interest in conspiracy theories. He used to say that 9-11 was a US government plot. He used to say that the Holocaust never happened. And so what we did with him was we took him on a visit to the Holocaust Memorial Centre in Nottingham, where not only did they have the opportunity to go on the museum tour and be faced with primary evidence of the horror and scale of the Holocaust, but he actually had the opportunity 
to meet a Holocaust survivor, someone who had been in a concentration camp when they were a child and had lost family members. Yeah. And that was a Hollywood movie type moment that just flipped this young lad's ideology completely on its head. And very shortly after that, we could safely exit them from the channel process because his his ideology, his racist ideology was pretty much gone. The important thing about the support we put in as far as channel is concerned is it relies on consent and it is absolutely tailored to a particular individual's needs. Sometimes it addresses the ideology that's at the heart of their issues, but we could just as easily tackle other vulnerabilities in their lives, whether it's mental health issues or lack of a role model or bereavement or any number of things. Quick sort of sub-question, because that, that image of painting with the, um, sorry, I'm going to call him former extremist, I couldn't think of a better term, but the, the gentleman you were dealing with, and he's there at that museum with that Holocaust survivor. Um, I'm assuming things didn't just change just there and then. I'm assuming it takes a while, doesn't that, it? What sort of time Yeah, I mean, we've had channel cases that have lasted a couple of months. We've had channel cases that have lasted a couple of years. And that particular visit in that case was the culmination of an 18-month journey with this young man with a few ups and downs. Um, and we tried a lot of different things with him. Um, but that was the culmination of it all. It really depends on a case-by-case basis how long we were involved in the mentoring process with someone. Yeah, yeah, because obviously, um, sorry, I'm just, I, I can imagine some people might misconstrued it as being sort of huggy, happy, clappy with sort of people like this. But this is very, you know, this is needed work. This is sort of very you know, long-winded, oh, sure. personalised sort of stuff. And, and one of the key things that we always try to introduce is some form of critical thinking or um, I suppose introducing areas of grey when people see things in very clear-cut black and white binary terms which extremists seem to love for some reason and so in this young man's case prior to the holocaust visit we used to do things he was on a program called rewind which challenged his perceptions about race and identity and racism you know he had this idea that white people were superior we were 100 percent pure race we were going to be extinct in a couple of generations etc etc but by talking about simple things like his dna profile you know, and how pretty much everybody around the world is related to some degree if you go back far enough. If you go back to evolution and, and talk about how humans all come from the same place in Africa, well then surely there is only one race at the end of the day. Why is it that we like to divide people based on their race, gender, sexuality, whatever we can think of, basically? So by getting into to view the concept of race through that lens, the fact that we're all related, we're all part of the one race, well, that was another key part of his development through channel if you like because it introduced those critical challenges to the way that he had previously viewed the world got him to question things think about things that little bit more not accept everything he heard at face value and i think that's that's something that's pretty common throughout people's channel experiences actually yeah and this guy had the potential to you know if he hadn't changed his ways to do something quite serious i'm assuming i would say so yeah yeah i mean it's hard goodness knows it's it's hard to predict it's hard to measure how you know can you say with your hand on your heart that you've prevented a terrorist attack for instance from taking place but did we make that young person's life circumstances better yeah you bet we did yeah again you know ditto what what sean has said and and it's a bespoke process and and it's it's down to the individual that we're working with and and uh, the support that we and they feel would be appropriate um in 
ideology sometimes can come way down the line. Uh, and, you know, Sean's right that we'll look at some of the social factors, psychological fractures that might be there, see if we can repair those. Uh, and as I said before, things like, you know, conflict resolution, um, offering mental health provision, bereavement counseling in some cases, because those kind of significant negative life events can be the catalyst that sends somebody spiraling towards extremist groups. Um, uh, so if you can if you can fix those underlying issues, if you like, or certainly go some way to repair them, you, you, you kind of reduce their need to rely on extremist ideologies as some kind of emotional uh, or spiritual crutch. Um, I mean, ideology itself is an interesting word, and, it, and it, it's a contentious space yet again. Um, you know, when we say ideology, we're talking about you know, far-right extremism, neo-Nazi extremism, Islamist extremism. Um, you know, critics of Prevent will say, no, you're talking about religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and where the two intersect, um, you know, we have to be honest, there is some intersection sometimes, mm-hmm. obviously not with, very rare with far-right extremism, or they, they, there can be some elements uh, of Christianity mm-hmm. sort of leveraged in there with some individuals. But when you're looking at Islamist extremism, um, the most common um, narrator that uh, people draw on is Anwar al-Awlaki. Uh, in fact, many of our critics <laughs> will, will tweet at length about how, how glorious he was and should be seen. Um, and he's he's fascinating because he he managed to, as, a, as an English-speaking imam and scholar, he managed to abuse elements of the Quran to his own his own advantage, essentially. And whereas you know, at the time in the heyday of al-Qaeda. Whereas Osama bin Laden, who was not a scholar and was very careful to avoid getting drawn into religious debates, um, he left that very much to Zawahiri. Um, Anwar al-Awlaki trumped him on that. And he was able, because he was so fluent in English, to be able to put out videos on YouTube that still do damage to this day. They still keep recurring. Um, that were very, very um, compelling to, to people. I mean, I guess one of the most famous cases was Roshanara Chowdhury, who was one of the few examples of someone who self-radicalized, who shut herself away, a very bright student, a great future ahead of her, shut herself away, um, absorbing the, the videos of Vanu Al-Awlaki, uh, and came out three or four months later, determined that she needed to commit an act of murder, and hoping that in committing that act of murder, she would herself be murdered uh, and, and be a martyr. And in her head, she would be Shaheed and she would go to paradise and as would her immediate family. Um, and that was purely from listening to the lectures of Anwar al-Awlaki. Um, so in a case like that, you would need an ideological and theological intervention provider to kind of deconstruct how he was misappropriating verses from the Quran uh, and what in, in, a, in a historical context the Quran is really trying to say. I mean, again, you know, we've talked about the similarities between far-right extremism and Islamist extremism. They both cherry-pick verses of the Quran to sell their own particular message to their audiences, uh, and Awlaki was no different. Um, so in those cases, you do need a theological intervention. Um, and that's where, I guess, there's one of the intersections where religion and ideology uh, are, are featured within Prevent. But actually, generally speaking, religion is of no interest to us in Prevent at all, uh, because we're looking at political violence and politically motivated violence, um, not religion. In fact, of, of all the cases that I've worked on over the years, there are very few for whom religion was a motivating factor. Most often, those with a really good religious understanding uh, of Islam probably have a better protection 
against radicalization than those who do not. Mm. Uh, and I know there's a very famous case of a young lad you know, who had Islam for, for dummies in his backpack as he went to Syria. I mean, that was an isolated case, but it does illustrate um, that actually um, it, it's, it's um, theological illiteracy that lends itself to radicalization. Um, and, and for me, religion can be used to justify the acts of violence, um, but all religious texts could be used to do that. Religion can be used to recruit other co-religionists who share that, that, that foundation because it's easier to recruit other people. And the thing that gets missing from the conversation, if you look at a group like ISIS who self-identify as Muslim, uh, and it isn't for me to say that they're not Muslim, the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar himself has said he cannot declare them as non-Muslim because they follow the five pillars of Islam. Um, they are only recruiting from Muslim communities around the world. Now that presents a very sensitive and thorny problem for governments across the world, even in Muslim-majority countries. How do we tackle radicalization from ISIS without stigmatizing the very communities that they're targeting? So when people say to me, oh, but prevent targets Muslim communities, actually ISIS, Al-Qaeda target Muslim communities. I am simply responding to what they're doing and trying to offer those communities as much resource, help and support that we possibly can to try and deal with this threat because no community is equipped for that level of sophisticated um, propaganda and radicalization and recruitment. So actually it's incumbent upon us to offer those communities whatever they need to help us help them to solve the problem. Yeah. Will is absolutely right. I concur with pretty much everything he said there. I mean, religious observance is not a reason to report somebody prevent. If somebody tells you that wearing a hijab or growing a beard is a, is a one-way ticket to prevent, they're wrong. It's just not the case. And in the majority of channel cases I've dealt with, when it comes to people uh, with a Muslim background, they have generally been people with a very low understanding of the faith. Um, I remember one particular young boy who was adamant that it was his Islamic duty to travel to Syria. And when he got there, Allah would tell him what to do, but he wanted to be present when, you know, all these final battles on the field of Dabiq, etc., were, were taking place. This was a young man who was pretty fluent in these kind of end of days type prophecies, but he had never set foot in a mosque. He didn't even have a copy of the Quran. He couldn't tell you the five pillars of Islam. So it was me who gave him his first ever copy of the Quran. One of the methods of support that we put in place through Channel was to take him to one of our local mosques where the Imam welcomed him, showed him around, essentially taught him how to pray because he was too self-conscious and nervous to go on his own at prayer time. He thought everybody would be looking at him. He didn't know what to do. Um, so actually tackling that religious illiteracy, it's not something I'm particularly good at, but it's something that our mentors can step up to the plate and assist with. And we've got mentors who have had personal relationships with people like Al Alwaki, who have been in conflict zones, who know what the reality of warfare is like, and they are really powerful, positive role models when it comes to some of our channel cases. But yeah, the, the whole notion that if you're religiously observant, you're going to get reported to prevent, that's absolute rubbish. In fact, if somebody's genuinely religious, then happy days. I don't think they're very likely to be an extremist. Yeah. It sounds like I'm going to get into sort of pop psychology territory for a moment. Um, so forgive me. Um, it does sound like the common thread with a lot of the people who 
are vulnerable to, um, to extremism and terrorism. It seems to be there's some something in their life that's either making them an outsider or is some sort of social circumstance that's not quite right. Um, is that am I correct in that sort of very general? <laughs> yeah, no, totally. So I mean, I mean, you know, academics talk at length about push and pull factors. Um, you know, there are things that happen in your own life that might push you to seek those extreme answers. But equally, you know, these groups are not sitting on their hands, you know, playing Angry Birds, waiting for someone to pick up the phone and say, well, can we have a meeting? You know, they're actively recruiting those exact same people. Um, so, you know, the groups themselves offer a sense of identity. They offer a sense of belonging, a sense of purpose. They offer outlets for grievances. If you have a particular grievance with the world, whether that's, you know, our foreign policy, our immigration policy, our animal testing policy, whatever that policy may be, if you have a grievance and you are not given the opportunity to um, talk about that, to to vent on that particular issue, these groups will offer you that. Uh, you know, when we're working with parents around some of these issues, there was some really good research by an organisation called uh, Connect Futures in Birmingham, looking at people that have exited from extremism and looking at the role of the family. Um, and what was fascinating for me and what I took away from that research more than anything was that within the family unit, if, if a person wanted to explore these themes within the family setting and the family shut down the debate, it made the problem worse. Obviously, if they encouraged the same extremist mindset, it's inevitably going to make the problem worse. And we get into whole realms of you know, social learning theory and, and what happens in, in your upbringing around you and the environment around you. But those that just explored that debate with that person in the family unit, at the dinner table, whatever it may be, were far better at accelerating the an exit from extremism. Mm-hmm. And that was fascinating to me because it's about opening that debate, which is why sort of within within the projects and activities and initiatives we fund in Prevent, a lot of it can be based around creating that debate, creating safe spaces, particularly for young people. I mean, we, you know, we go on social media and it's to see what our friends at for dinner or be envious of which holiday destination they're tweeting about right now. But for young people, it's an extension of their identity. It's an extension of, of how they communicate. I've seen young people in a group communicating with each other via their technology, despite sitting in a circle. Um, and I think we, we as adults need to reflect on that and look at how important social media and the internet is for young, young people. And that's how... That's how they vent. That's how they are able to explore their grievances. And there are people there online who are more than willing to draw them in and have that conversation with them. So our role, I think, is to create those spaces for young people where they can air that grievance in a safe environment. Uh, Not necessarily a controlled environment, but a safe environment where they feel at ease and relaxed enough to be able to share their concerns, share their anxieties, uh, explore their worries. Uh, and, and I'm feeling as if that level of communication is becoming a lost art, not just in schools and colleges, but also just in the family home as well. As, as we all become, this is where my cynicism starts to seep in again, as we become more kind of individualised in society and we're, we're really caring about ourselves rather than those around us. Um, even in the family unit, I, I bet people listening to this, you know, how, how many have sat there in the living room and looked up and thought, bloody hell, every single one of us is on our technology right now and the television's on in the background as well. Why aren't we talking to each other? So, I, I mean, I make a, make a point. You know, I have a stepchild and a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. We have a family meal every single night 
because we think it's important to have that time. And yes, there's bickering and there's issues about, you know, getting my daughter to eat a strawberry, but it's at least it's an opportunity to have a family interaction. It in fact sounds so simple and nothing to do with counter-terrorism, but actually if the, if the individuals we're worried about who are vulnerable feel isolated, feel marginalized, feel like they can't explore the, the concerns and the grievances and anxieties they have about the world, then they are more inclined to seek out those groups and be sought out by those groups who will give them that and then give them all those other things that empower them, increase their self-esteem, give them that sense of purpose and belonging that they're lacking in life. Like what we're doing? Support the show by becoming a Dry Cleaner Cast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. Just to tap into your cynicism quickly. Um, sorry Brave to do that. Man. I know. Um, we'll be here all day. <laughs> are, um, are things like, quote unquote, fake news, conspiracy theories, uh, you know, propaganda from various countries, potentially Russia, are they making things harder for you guys now? In a word, yes. Uh, I mean, conspiracy theories run through our work like, like words through a, a stick of rock. Um, I can't recall in recent times any case we've worked on where conspiracy theories were not an infatuation of, of the person we're working with. Um, that immersion in fake news and conspiracy um, is prevalent, it's rife, um, and I had a really interesting conversation with a former neo-Nazi. In fact, he's the chap um, who the film American History X is based on. Oh, okay. And he was telling me how he, he was doing an online intervention with someone that was being drawn into um, or radicalized uh, online through Facebook by um, Islamist extremists elsewhere in the world. Um, and he dug down, he dug down, he dug down, and he, he, by pure happenstance, managed to track down who it was that was doing the radicalizing. And he managed to link them, I won't say how, but he managed to link it to about 14 or 15 other Islamist extremist identities all separate identities, but the same person doing it, having conversations with 14, 15 other people or more, but also the same person doing exactly the same with far right and extreme right wing identities um, with multiple accounts from one IP address. Now he says he sourced that back to Russia and having identified it, he had all kinds of problems with his own website and, and he got hacked and shut down uh, temporarily for, for a few days. Um, so there clearly is a lot of sort of malevolent and mischievous spreading of misinformation out there. Um, and I don't know about you, Sean, but certainly in my experience, in working with young people in schools in particular, um, immersion in conspiracy theories is becoming a really serious problem for us. Oh yeah, it's, it's, it's massive. And this is why it kind of winds me up a wee bit whenever people say that Prevent has this chilling effect on freedom of speech. That's the buzzword you hear time and time again, when in actual fact it tries to do the exact opposite. It tries to draw people into conversations and get them to think more deeply and critically about things, particularly in our schools. The whole fake news propaganda thing, it, it's all over the place. And we've seen some mainstream news organisations fall for it, just as much as I know police officers on Facebook who have accidentally shared fake news. So it's something that affects us all that we need to, we need to get up to speed with. I'll just share a, a really brief anecdote that I, I love telling. My five-year-old daughter, when I was on my phone in the kitchen a few months back, asked me what I was doing and I told her that I was checking the news and quick as lightning she said to me, make sure you check it from three different places before you decide what to believe. Um, 
That's really good advice. Well, she's a, she, my daughter's a genius. Erin, if you're listening, hello. Um, but in all seriousness, she had just had a visit at school that day from their e-cadets who uh, researched online safety themselves, you know, the older kids in the primary school. They designed their own posters. They went into the smaller classrooms and they stood up and they presented to the other younger kids on internet safety. Now, if that's not, you know, British values in action, I, I don't know what is. But since then... She just loves hearing about internet safety because she looks up to the e-cadets at her school. But to be honest with you, there's a lesson for all of us in that because if you look at how even our mainstream media tackles terrorist incidents, for example, and we touched on it earlier on, when is an incident terrorism, when is it hate crime, etc. If you look at the differences in reporting on the Westminster Bridge attack compared to the Finsbury Park Mosque attack, for instance, you will see some quite stark differences mm. even though the method involved in those attacks was everything was pretty much identical wasn't it you know mm. from the the vehicle used the intent to ply into innocent civilians to me the only difference really was the color of the attacker to be yeah. blunt yeah. um and yet different news agencies decided to report it in slightly different ways we all need to be a bit more careful about how we consume our mainstream media it, it, it frightens the life out of me, to be honest with you, but we, we have to grip it and we have to tackle it. And in fairness, that's one of the many things that Prevent tries to do. It, it's not unusual when we're working uh, with young people. I mean, I, I, I created a youth group um, in, in my early days working in Leicester. Um, and it was it was of mixed faith. Um, uh, there was a, uh, even a, a Buddhist and an atheist in, in, in the group. Uh, and they were all either of college or, or early university age. And across the spectrum, the, their go-to platform for their media consumption and news consumption was RT. Mm. After that was Twitter and Facebook. Um, now, Twitter and Facebook, we know use algorithms to keep you in your own bubble. You know, we we rant and we rave on on Twitter, and we think we're we're you know in our own individual way we're standing up to the man and, and sticking it to the establishment. What we don't realize is Twitter behind the scenes is putting us into the very groups we think we're no longer part of because we're so individual um, because the algorithm's doing that and it's keeping us it's keeping us together. And it listens to you as well. I mean, I've had conversations with people and suddenly like, I go online and I suddenly find an article related oh, on yeah. exactly the thing I was talking about. Yeah. Tell me about it. I keep getting adverts for Bing, the stage show coming up on my <laughs> news feed because I foolishly looked at what it would be like to take my daughter to see Bing um, and now I'm, I'm absolutely inundated and well, saturated not, uh... with Bing. I'll not tell you what I get adverts for, but can I just tell you another quick wee story? This Around about this time last year, um, we had a youth worker in the Midlands who came across a group of young teenage fellas in the community centre engrossed in a video that they were watching on a tablet. This was a group of young men who, let's face it, were pretty disenfranchised and disinterested and disconnected, not particularly interested in the world around them, yet they were engrossed by this video. And it was... Tommy Robinson. Uh, it was the um, the rebel media video that he produced in the immediate aftermath of the Westminster attack when he stood on the streets of Westminster arguing with passers-by, saying things like, this is an attack by Islam. Our government isn't going to protect us. We are at war with Islam. You know, it's pretty heated stuff that he was saying and this was before the motives of the attacker even became clear before we knew the full circumstances and it seemed like for the first time this group of young individuals were properly engaged and they felt like somebody was talking their language and answering the questions that they wanted answers to 
And that was a wake up call, I think, for us in terms of how do we engage people like that? How can we get them to see beyond this, you know, gonzo, gritty, pseudo realistic style of journalism that's very confrontational and thickly edited and produced? And let's face it, pretty entertaining as well. It's had nearly two million views on YouTube. How do we compete with, with that type of stuff when we, when we certainly don't have the funds that, that a rebel media has at their disposal? And so it is all about trying to find, I suppose, more engaging ways that we can capture the attention of, of young people in order to make them think more deeply about things that are happening today. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I, I met my first flat earther at work this week. Oh, really? Um, and and um, she was sort of championing alternative media and was talking about how it's interesting how programs, uh, well, yeah, programs called programs because it links to programming and stuff like that. And and so, you know, you're mentioning just now of RT and all these different sort of channels that you can now find catered to your worldview. It's, it's how do we kind of compete with that? It's really hard because... I, I must admit, I don't know quite how one goes, you know, how can one can tackle somebody with a conspiracy mindset. If you go to a certain point, and I'm a former conspiracy theorist as well, and and I, I honestly don't know how you can sort of talk people out. That's why I've been fascinated by sort of in a sense what you've been saying today about tackling extreme ideas. So one one of the things we we mm. we did it with we produced some lesson plans um, called the Respect Program, and one of the modules within that um, is around. Um, getting young people to create a conspiracy theory. And it's a really simple one um, that I, I came up when I was shaving one morning. I thought, I wonder if you were to convince people that shaving companies, I mean, this is, this is daft stuff, but this is work, you know, you're working at secondary school level and you really want them to engage with how to create a conspiracy theory. Um, and I thought, what if um, razor blade companies were actually, instead of using a lube strip on their razors, actually put some kind of hair growth serum in there to ensure that your stubble came back quicker so that you had to keep buying more razor blades. And we wanted them to create this as a conspiracy theory. Um, but the trick of that is, I, I, who knows, maybe that's what they do, I don't know. But the trick of that is um, how difficult it is once you've created that conspiracy for somebody else to break it down. Because every time you try and attack it, you're part of the conspiracy. Um, and young people have found that a really fascinating exercise. And they created their own conspiracy theory. That was just the original template for them to kind of expand on and, and think of their own conspiracies. But the one thing they're finding time and time again is when they've created this spurious conspiracy theory, even when they then say, actually, I've just made that one up, they're struggling to convince people they made it up because conspiracy theories have a real resonance with people. I mean, there's, there's a good book out there by Rob Brotherton around conspiracy theories, which I would urge people interested um, in this area to, 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 to download or to buy. But he explores the link between mm. sort of conspiracism yeah. and extremism. And in fact, Demos, uh, I think it was uh, Jamie Barlett and, and Carl, Carl Miller, I think, actually did a piece of research in 2010 uh, showing that those that are involved in extremism seem to be more, uh, uh, more connected to conspiracism and conspiracy theories. Um, than the, the general population. So there's definitely some something in that. So when facial hair truth takes off, we've got you to blame for this. Well, that's, that's why I have a beard. <laughs> and not having any... Gillette, aren't gonna, you're not going to get me. But in saying that, you know, on a more serious note, this sort of thing, tackling these issues, it has to start, I'd be honest, at a primary school level, as far as I'm concerned, because... These issues aren't going anywhere anytime soon. The internet is a wonderful thing. And it's a fact of everybody's lives. My daughters are much better suited to using the tablets and phones and things than what I am. 
And I think that it's at those early years that we need to embed that resilience and the online safety. I'm not talking about filtering. I'm not necessarily talking about parental controls and censorship, but equipping them with the tools they need to be able to safeguard themselves online, I think is really, really important. When I was a, you know, a young teenager, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old, I had no kind of access to the kind of level of information and the, the, the amount of uh, of information that is out there now through social media and through the internet that young people are being bombarded with. Um, and from a very, very early age, they're, they're immersed in things and reading things and getting uh, addicted to, to new sites and new stories that I probably didn't even know existed till I was 18, 19, 20 years old. So we as a society have to move with those times. Um, and if that's how young people are consuming their media, then we need to be instilling that training them very early. And, and I, you know, I think you know, we're moving away from prevent slightly, but I do think you know, primary school is, is the age to start that. I've seen very small children stood in Oxford Street swiping the shop windows, thinking the display is going to change um, because they think they're using a tablet. It looks like a giant glossy tablet yeah. at Christmas time. So I suppose one day that might be the future, might not it? Just be a big tablet on a window, but anyway. There you go. You'll make your fortune that way. But yes, I mean, Sean is right. We, we, you know, we need to bring these skills, particularly around critical thinking uh, and consumption of media, uh, at a very young age because younger and younger children are accessing huge amounts of data and huge amounts of media. There was some recent research, I can't remember the exact figures, but it was conducted by the NSPCC, which found that anxiety levels amongst young people that were caused by fears about world events and the Trump presidency and Brexit and things like that were going through the roof. Kids shouldn't be worrying about stuff like that. Do you know what I mean? But they're exposed to so much more than we ever were and they're so much more mature, I suppose, than we ever were at that age as well. But, you know, we that's, that's not right, you know? Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter at DryCleanerCast. So Prevent is ruffling a lot of feathers. Why is there so much animosity towards Prevent? So a lot of it is down to misinformation. Um, I, I spend an awful lot of time um, sort of challenging some of our um, uh, critics. Um, I mean, they, they fall... Our critics themselves are a nuanced bunch, but they fall roughly into, into two camps if you really wanted to take it down to that level. Uh, those that are malicious about Prevent and those that are misinformed about Prevent. Um, those that are misinformed, they, you know, they deserve our time, they deserve our attention to explain what it is, what we do, what happens, you know, peer behind the curtain a little bit and see what actually happens on the ground and speak to some of the people that have been through the programme, that work within Prevent, grassroots communities. I think there's close to 100 grassroots community organisations working on this agenda nationally, all because they care about their local communities and care about you know, preventing radicalisation. Uh, and so for the misinformed around Prevent, I think it's incumbent upon us to have that open conversation with them. Um, those that are malicious, I have very little time for. Um, they are the ones who are dishonest, disingenuous. They peddle stories and myths about Prevent that they know to be untrue. And that's the critical thing here. If someone criticises Prevent because they're talking about the famous terrorist house case, and they know no better, it's incumbent upon us to explain what actually happened there. It was not a prevent referral. A police officer visited the house of a child because he wrote an essay in which he disclosed that a family member beat him. And that was a safeguarding referral. In the essay, he did also misspell the word terrorist as terrorist. That played no part in a prevent referral. He wasn't referred to prevent. The police officer that visited the house was nothing to do with prevent, but obviously that was also mentioned in the conversation 
because he was worried about this disclosure of domestic violence. If you don't know the real story behind that and you perpetuate it, it's incumbent upon us to explain it. But so many groups, individuals out there who know the truth of that story, who still peddle it, who privately will say to me, oh yeah, I know it's a crock of shit, Will, but you know, nobody else does, so I'm going to keep using it. They're the ones that infuriate me the most because that is a level of dishonesty that I will not tolerate. And those are the critics um, for whom I think we need to be very strong and, and maybe put a mirror up against them and who they are and what's driving them to be so dishonest about a safeguarding strategy. What he said. I mean, I, uh, I try not to dwell too much on the, the anti-prevent um, narrative because I feel that it doesn't really get me anywhere. It takes a lot of time and energy when I'm trying to engage with, with certain groups, etc. But I do like to try as much as possible to correct some of the myths and misconceptions that exist about prevent because to be perfectly honest with you there has been a negative narrative that has been allowed to ferment and dominate when it comes to prevent so if i was a safeguarding lead at a school for example and i was told right you're our new prevent lead i want you to source the training can you go and sort that for us and i knew nothing about the strategy and i typed prevent into google I would be faced with a barrage of negativity and I can well understand why that person may have a pretty dim view of the prevent strategy. Um, we could have done a little bit better at being more open and transparent about our processes and what we did in years gone by, although I do think that that has improved markedly in the last number of months and years. But whenever you think about the usual myths around how prevent targets Muslim communities, well, I think we've covered that already. I mean, a huge portion of our workload relates to far-right extremism. You know, it doesn't put anybody under surveillance, you know, recording, covert spying, surveillance, none of that sort of thing is allowed under the prevent strategy. Um, we've touched on how it doesn't actually hinder freedom of speech. It doesn't criminalize people. It doesn't subscribe to a conveyor belt notion of radicalization. I'd never heard the phrase conveyor belt of radicalization, to be honest, until I heard it from critics of prevent. Certainly not something I've ever been taught or come across since I've worked in this area. So it is incumbent on us, as Will says, to tackle the myths, to be open and transparent, to be accountable, to be scrutinized, to be open to criticism. I'll take constructive criticism all day long because I want to improve the strategy as much as anybody else. Um, but it's the disingenuous stuff that, yeah, gets a wee bit frustrating from time to time. There are, yeah, as we were saying, there are some groups out there who are trying to paint prevent as in, as a form of institutional racism or an excuse to intimidate political activists. I mean, is is prevent a form of institutional racism? No, and I think I think that the statistics, um, you know, bear us out on that. As Sean says, I think it's about a third now of our caseload in the Channel Programme is linked to far-right extremism. Um, most of the people that work in Prevent come from a, a social care or youth work or youth justice background. These are not the people you would you would expect to be inherently racist, and indeed they're not inherently racist. What what we have seen, however, is that some of these um, more callous anti-Prevent kind of movements uh, have aligned themselves with anti-racism movements, with human rights organisations, uh, partly to legitimise themselves, uh, but partly to, to use those as a cover to, to attack the prevent strategy. I mean, there, there are concerns by 
um, sections of society that you know the UK itself is institutionally racist and you look at situations like Grenfell uh, and, and even Windrush and they're, they're, people are arguing that that is uh, somehow proof that the UK is institutionally racist uh, and it's not for me to make a judgment call either way on that um, but to then bring the prevent strategy into that exact same discussion um, I think is is quite malicious uh, and mischievous um, and it, it's almost it's almost exploiting genuine tragedy uh, to try and make a political point against prevent. And I think that's what concerns me the most. So no, prevent is not institutionally racist. Um, so much of our work is, 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 is tackling racism and tackling hatred and tackling discrimination and stigmatization. So, so absolutely not. And when it comes to things like political activism, for example, you know, prevent actively promotes that. We're not against radical political thought. Where we have to draw the line, obviously, is where violence becomes a factor or the glorification, incitement or support of violence. But one of the projects that, that Will initiated uh, quite recently in Leicester was a, a set of lesson plans for schools called Reclaim Radical, where young people in Leicester decided to do what it says on the tin, reclaim the word radical for themselves. And they created their own videos, which basically said to people, listen, we're young people, we have a voice, we want to be listened to, we have strong political views, call us radical if you will, but there's absolutely no problem with having these discussions and it's not a reason to stereotype us or judge us or any of those sorts of things. So we actually embrace that, we embrace political activism. If somebody's got a particular grievance, say uh, they've got a beef with UK foreign policy, which to be fair, I do from time to time, then we would try to encourage positive and constructive ways to deal with that grievance that don't go down a violent path, but there's lots of other ways that people can actively get engaged in, in public life. Do you think we could live without Prevent? I think we would struggle. Yeah. I mean, the, the Prevent is is the one that everyone talks about, but I mean, I've worked all over the world now on, on different prevention strategies in different countries. Most countries have a Prevent strategy of some description. They might call it preventing violent extremism, countering violent extremism. We shorten it to Prevent. Um, I don't think, because it is such a pro-social way of dealing with this problem, and because it aligns with tackling polarisation in society, but at the same time giving a helping hand to those that have been so polarised that they legitimise violence against other groups, and they are othering other groups and creating out-groups and, and stigmatising and dehumanising those groups, then I don't think uh, we will ever roll back from this safeguarding approach. It feels the right way of approaching it. Um, social media has exacerbated the problem of radicalization to such an extent that every country needs some form of prevention strategy. The alternative, as I say, is to wait until somebody actually commits a crime and then we have victims of a crime. Then we have a person that could have been prevented from becoming a criminal themselves, which potentially could destroy the rest of their lives. So it's just the most positive pro-social way forward. I don't think the criticism will ever go away. I think it's right that genuine critique, it, it holds us to account, the scrutiny that Jean talks about. I think we need to be very open to that and have and engage with those critical friends of something like Prevent, because it is a sensitive area. And if it is misapplied, it could cause harm. So it's right that people hold us to account for that. Um, but they have to be honest brokers in that conversation. And they have to have genuine, honest concerns to share with us and advice to give us um, but you know we sit here now you know between us 15 years working in prevent 
not one single person has come up with another viable alternative to the prevent strategy. Um, and that same issue is replicated around the world. And until people can present a viable alternative that is equally around safeguarding, that is equally positive, is equally about offering support um, and, and, a, and a safety cushion, if you like, for people that are, are at risk, um, then we will always have some form of prevent strategy. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and it's not to say that it will remain, remain static. It will continue to evolve and develop to meet emerging threats and trends, etc. But if you were to have a blank piece of paper and come up with your own counter-extremism strategy from scratch, I dare say you might want to come up with something that has safeguarding at its heart that relies on the encouragement and consent of the people who are involved in the process, that it's not police-led, that it doesn't criminalise people or put them on a watch list, uh, that it involves tackling all forms of social harms, that information is shared, that it's open and transparent. Well, do you know what? All of those boxes tick prevent, which we already have. So I would just like to see a few more, I suppose, critical friends, as Will says, come on board and try and help us develop it. I mean... I don't want to get on my high horse, but I don't think it does much good shouting from the sidelines and being negative all the time. My wife would often say, don't give me problems, give me solutions, you know. So if you've got an issue, come and talk to us about it and let's see if we can work it out rather than just, you know, shouting from the sidelines. It's a fascinating exercise that we've done time and time again over the years, particularly working in community settings and with community groups, is to say to them, um, okay, for the next... 15, 20 minutes, you are the prevent coordinator. You write a strategy that you think will solve this problem. We'll do away with prevent for the next 30 minutes. What are you going to produce? They produce one of two things. One is something so draconian and unpalatable that no government on earth would implement it. The other thing they produce is the prevent strategy. Reminds me of a Family Guy episode I once saw. So there we go. Um, well, look, we're, we're running out of time a little bit now, so we'll wrap up. So, um, Sean, Will, um, do you have any sort of final thoughts on anything that we may have missed that's important to you um, or anything else that you'd like to talk about that's related to this that's important to you? I think as, as a parting shot, I would say for, for those of your listeners who, for them, this is their first foray into understanding or hearing about the prevent strategy from the inside, if you are genuinely curious, if you're genuinely interested, just contact your local prevent police team or your local prevent leader at the local authority. They will be more than amenable to sitting down and having a conversation with you, inviting to some of their events. Just learn about it from the people who do it and not from the hashtags and hyperbole that are out there that are trying to undermine us. Actually speak to prevent practitioners, mm-hmm. look at the local plans and understand it from the inside out rather than, as Sean says, standing from the sidelines throwing stones. It, there is no mystery to prevent. We've just been very bad at our own PR. Um, so my call out to, to those that are genuinely interested in the prevent strategy is to learn more by getting hands on and actually getting involved in your local prevent strategy. I'd echo that. I mean, I'd particularly like to pay tribute actually to everybody that works in the prevent network and the communities that work with us because what you basically have are hundreds of people all over the country who just keep their heads down and they every day are cracking on with doing their absolute best for people because they want to make the world a wee bit of a better place. And that sounds trite, but, you know, they do so much good work. They are good people from a wide variety of backgrounds and circumstances. 
And I just want to give them credit where it's due because they don't, they don't get enough of it, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I often feel that there's actually a bit of a disconnect. And I know we've talked a lot about our critics and, and how prevent is perceived nationally and stuff. But I often feel that there's a bit of a disconnect between those big highfalutin political debates about prevent and how it actually works on the ground at a grassroots level. Because if truth be told, these conversations and debates about whether prevent is effective and all of this kind of thing, I don't tend to have those with teachers and social workers and health workers. People who have frontline practical experience of prevent and who have seen the benefits of it tend to really support it and get behind it. And I don't think that's brought up enough. I guess the final thing I would just say is, is, is a bit of a call to action from anybody who's listening, really. We often hear the police talk about how communities can defeat terrorism. And I think that's absolutely true. What we are looking to achieve is that element of resilience and civic responsibility amongst people to basically do the right thing. And one of the things that always hits home with me is some research that Paul Gill and others did a few years ago. If you Google bombing alone, you could, you could find the full paper. But one of the results of it was having examined uh, a database of about 120 lone actor terrorists from all over the world. What they actually found was that in 64% of those cases, family and friends were aware that the attacker was going to commit an act of terrorism beforehand because they verbally told them. Mm. I find that pretty staggering. And in, in 83% of cases, other people in the community were aware because they spotted some of the signs and were aware of some of the grievances that these people had. So it's not necessarily about getting bogged down in little lists about warning signs and vulnerabilities. My plea to anybody listening is if you have a concern about anybody for whatever reason, please share it. The only interventions we put in place are positive. It's all about supporting people and making their life that wee bit better with their consent. So there shouldn't really be any barriers to supporting what we do. Well, look, Will, Sean, um, where can listeners sort of find out more about both of you and your, your work? Well, I've, I've spent the best part of three years failing to set up a website on Squarespace. Um, it's still sitting there as a bare bones. Um, there is a less to prevent website, but I'm very ready to get time to update it. I, I guess um, if you go onto Twitter and look for Will Balde, um, you'll find me um, ruminating uh, about Prevent, waxing lyrical about some of our good work, unless I've had a glass of wine, in which case I'm quite belligerent. Uh, but generally speaking, if you want to know about what we're doing in Prevent and signpost to other areas that are working on Prevent, my Twitter feed is probably the, the, the best place to go. Will has been described as a one-man propaganda machine for Prevent, I should add. I don't, I, don't, I don't know how he puts up with some of the stuff that he gets on Twitter. I, I'm trying to cut down on my Twitter yeah, time, to yeah. be fair, but that's probably the best way for people to contact me as well, if they can spell my surname, that is. You're not going to help them with that, are you? <laughs> no, they, they, they can find me through Will. You can put me in a search engine and find me through Will. Cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today because you know we we connected through twitter and we did you know, yeah and and um like you were just saying just now if anybody has a concern you know you should just reach out you know and i appreciate you guys coming to meet with me today so thank you very much pleasure thank you thank you thank you chris For more information about the podcast, visit our website at drycleanercast.co.uk. Thanks for listening.